HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program was brought to you by Estes Public Relations. For more information, visit estespr.com. I'm Greg Blaze, host of Cutting the Curd. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Heritage Radio Network. Today is Monday, November 7th. I'm one of your hosts, Jacqueline Raposo. I write about people who make food. You can find my work and me as at wordsfoodart.com. I'm 35, straight, and single. And I am your other host, Ben Rosenblatt. I am an actor, writer, musician, occasional bartender, and server. You can check me out at benrosenblattactor.com. I am 34, straight, and in a relationship. So we have a really funky show today that I am very... I don't know if it's that funky, Ben. We have a really fun, funky show today. Uh, it's, It's kismet is the word I've been using because last week do you recall the conversation we had where I was like Ben I have a problem don't remember a word of it no I'm dating three (laughs) guys and I need to I think I only want to date one of them and you help me go down to dating one of them and we're going to call that guy the writer and so I'm dating I was dating so I dated the writer and everything worked out perfectly actually where I did exactly what you said and now I'm just dating the writer and I've how did the when you you had to let had, down the right, other gentleman, he called, did, he called me that night on Halloween to ask me out, and I said what you said to say, which was, which was, I'm dating somebody else right now, and it's going. I need. I want to explore it, and I can't date more than one person right now. And I think you're great, and timing, and this and that. I thought you should so, say that. That's really smart. Okay. Did. Anyway, and um, it worked. And okay. he said, please. And I said, but if it. Things might not work out. Dating, you never know. Blah 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 blah. And he said, "Yeah, if it doesn't work out, please definitely give me a call." So now I've got two guys on deck. If it doesn't work out, on deck. That's terrible. That's terrible. <laughs> if it Come on. Work out, well, not on deck. Don't keep people on deck. You're making me f- not on not intentionally on deck. God, now you're making me feel bad. That's not what I even meant. I'm hope. Oh God, I'm feeling pressure. 
I didn't mean for this to happen. It's I don't. Just, I, I, we're it, not even supposed to be talking about this. This was okay. Anyway, so anyway, the new guy. You're making me. This the was writer. not supposed to happen. The writer. Ah, oh, the writer. I had a really good week with the writer. Shh, all right, yeah, so that writer. was the, all right. So Great Tuesday. Week with the writer. So Tuesday. You play All right. Can we anyway. start over? What? No. So Tuesday. Come on. I went to an event with the writer called the House of Speakeasy at Joe's Pub, where they connect writers plus audiences. And we went to see two writers specifically of the four, and one of them was James Rebanks, uh, the author of The Shepherd's View and The Shepherd's Life from uh, the northwest of England, from the Lake District. And the writer specifically wanted to see him, and this one other writer there, and we had a great time. He spoke beautifully about what is pertinent to our new theme that we're going to explore the next couple of weeks. We're going to explore family love. Don't so, get your minds out of the gutter. Not that kind of family not love. Not that kind okay. of family love. Which is going to be relevant when I started searching uh, cousin love. Gross things come, but that's a show for another day. So, so Tuesday that happens, and then Friday I had to rework our guest schedule, and we get a pitch. Guess what? This author, James Rebanks, is going to be back in town this weekend. Dun, dun, dun. But had I not seen him on Tuesday, I would not have known why he is so perfect for our show on family love. So today we are exploring fathers and grandfathers specifically. So this weekend I met James and his wife Helen downtown by the Tenement Museum where they were going to go on a tour. And the writer and I met them and we walked to the park and I asked James five questions. I asked him to tell me five stories and we're going to talk about four of them today. The fifth one I will tell you guys about on the end. We're going to tell four stories today and then you and I, Ben, are going to sort of just give our thoughts on these four stories and how they sort of, what they inspire in us and how they relate to our lives. How Brilliant. Sound? Sounds awesome. So he's a shepherd in the northwest of England, and his family has been doing this on the same plot of land for generations. His father, his grandfather, his great-grandfather, going back. And it is a be- the books are beautiful. Get the book, The Shepherd's Life. It is just stunning. Like, I feel like it's something that I just absolutely have no idea. Like, it's just like, it's such a foreign world to me. It's such a that's why he wrote this memoir and it's, I mean, it's horrible to use the words precious and charming for a lifestyle that is so badass and hard and ruthless day by day. Uh, but it is this very specific type of farming that's been done for generations and hundreds I, I know, of thousands of years. I think of shepherd, I just like, think like 18th century. It's, I don't know, you know. And, and this particular type of uh, farming has been done the same way for centuries. It's it's pretty much the only place on earth that it's still being done this way. So definitely get this book, The Shepherd's Life, and he is Herdy Shepherd one on Twitter. He's got a huge Twitter following, and you can see beautiful pictures of his sheep there. Um, so the first question that I asked him was what being a shepherd has taught him about love for land, because in his book he talks about sort of this bucolic, romantic idea that we have about the Lake District in this part of England, and how that is true, but it's not necessarily true when you're out mm. working the land. So as I talk to you right now, we're in a park in, in Manhattan, we're surrounded by sort of urban spaces and very tall buildings, and it reminds me very much why I love the landscape I live in. The, uh, what do I love about the landscape? I, I love the fact that it's staggeringly beautiful. I love that it's blindingly green compared to where I am now. Uh, and the thing I really love is the being there through it all. So. I think it's possible to visit any landscape and see, it, see the immediate beauty of it, but I think landscapes open themselves up to you uh, the more you're in them, the more you work in them, the more you stick it through everything in them. So when I'm working on the farm and I'm with my sheep and my sheep dogs, there are days when maybe it would be good to be in Manhattan because the snow is coming down and my hands are frozen and then my ears have cracks in them and I'm wincing. But about like two months later when the, the, the ground warms up and the sun comes out and the grass grows, 
I have a feeling of elation about having got through the winter and the spring coming uh, that I don't think he'd get it. He'd just turn up on a sunny day in spring. It's interesting, his thoughts on his love for his land remind me really of any type of love that's worth having um, in that, you know, yeah, you can show up anywhere and maybe see a beautiful woman, right? And you can have maybe some sort of love at first sight kind of thing going on, but it's the type of love that you've kind of stuck through the shitty parts and like the highs and the lows. You've seen the ugly side of the person too and have stuck through that. That makes it a love that's, you know, meaningful. My thoughts are more connected actually to the idea of nature because we just had daylight savings time yesterday and so I am focused to December 21st which is the shortest day of the year as far as sunlight goes. Because of my health I do not like the cold of winter, I'm a spring person. That sort of making it through and seeing like bustling, you know, like sort of hunkering down to get closer to the earth during the winter that we're feeling right now, like I feel very in tune with sort of the seasons and especially since I go to Connecticut a lot and sort of, I, you know, I hug trees and I sort of, and I walk barefoot and I, so what he says definitely resonates with Do you have like one main tree and then other trees on deck or? (laughs) (laughs) I actually do have three favorite trees. I have three trees. I have three favorite trees. You're such a jerk. You're such a jerk. Okay, let's get, what's the next story? Oh God. All right, the next story, um, (laughs) the next story we're going to talk about uh, his sheep. Basically that, you know, Heritage being a food radio station and Heritage Foods working with the idea of no goat left behind and working with Heritage Meats and, you know, a lot of the sheep that he raises are for male lambs that are sold for meat. And so I basically just asked him, like, what has raising sheep that are being sold for meat taught you about love and the responsibility of eating meat as a human being? I think maybe the, the biggest thing that growing up on a farm and living the life I live teaches you is, is a sense of realism about what we are as a species. I read a statistic the other day, something like 98% of us in the UK or in America eat meat, and I think if you eat meat you have to accept the realities of that, and the realities are that we change the world that we live in, we create fields, we put animals in barns, we do things um, uh, that wouldn't happen in nature. Many of us are healthy and well-fed because of that, but I think it's... It's a shame we've become so disconnected from the processes. So I think if many people in cities and towns have a deep love of nature, they have a deep respect for animals, but they're very disconnected from what's happening to them in the food chain that ends up on their plate. And I think we need to reconnect with that process and see more of it with our own eyes, maybe even do more of it with our own hands. Does that involve some tough moments where animals die? Yes. But I think how they die is really, really important. I think if they die quickly and humanely and they've been trapped properly, that makes a big difference to how I set my moral compass. And also, it matters greatly to me how they live. I want animals, I don't want animals to live in factories, I want animals to live on farms and to be looked after as well as they can be. I want their lives to be as natural as I can make it. I want them to be as stress-free as I can make it. And one of the reasons that I wrote a book about uh, a traditional shepherding way of life was I wanted to explain to people that we can make profound choices. When we go to the, the market, when we go to the shops, go to the restaurant, if we start asking questions, you know, where did this meat come from? Who was it reared by? People can't give you good answers to that. Go to another restaurant, go to another shop, go to a smaller butcher, buy meat of people who can give you the answers to the questions that you need. And is it easy talking to the general public about how I live and farm? 
Uh, no, it's challenging to everybody. Uh, the things that happen on farms can be challenging to people. There's some sort of quite stark moral things happen. But the truth is, we can't opt out of our place in nature. Even if we're vegetarians or vegans, our eating has a profound impact on the environment. It has a profound impact on wild animals and domestic animals. I think properly farmed, respectfully farmed animals are a vital ingredient, even in growing crops for vegetarians and vegans, in that uh, much of the arable farming, the crop farming around the world, is based at the moment on oil, oil-based artificial fertilizers uh, and if we want to have genuinely sustainable food systems into the future we probably have to go back to a mixed farming system which has livestock on the ground which manure the ground with their, with their muck uh, and that's how farming was done for most of human history and there's a, there's a logic to it. I personally feel blessed I've spent the last four or five years uh, having a conversation with 85,000 people on Twitter and I feel like I've learned so much from people. There's no sense in my head of me telling everybody the answers because I know all of the answers. It's become more of a dialogue with people and I feel like I've learned loads, loads about that. Obviously, food is very important to me because of my health. The idea of eating whole, natural, fortifying foods is a form of medicine to me and has been for a very long time. And so speaking with them just about the responsibility that we have as human beings, both in our own lives, but then also for our planet, uh, was very fortifying for me because I definitely try as a human being, I only bring into my own home grass-fed, organic beef, and I buy pasture-raised eggs now because, you know, I want the chickens that give me my eggs to have the best life possible. And being city people, it's it's definitely hard, but from a perspective of I need the best quality things in my body in order to be as healthy as I can, I need the animals to be as healthy as possible. And so it's been an interesting experience for me, particularly because of that. But I recognize that my experience is very niche. So like, what's your perspective? Yeah, I mean, my perspective is similar ideologically and not always the same in practice. Um, it's hard in New York and it's expensive. Like I spend, you know, $7 a dozen on eggs every time I buy eggs. That's not I was just going to say, yeah, that I mean people. living in a city and being, you know, a, a struggling and, artist, yeah. I tend to like buy the cheapest food yeah. I can find, you know, well that the cheapest food that I can like and will right. enjoy eating, you know. And so, yeah, like, I'm not always, in fact, I'm rarely as mindful as I would like to be on the ethics of the food that I'm buying. And, in fact, because, like you said, people who live in cities can often be out of touch with the process, and because I feel like I am very sheltered from the process, it's really kind of easy to remain in denial about the process. I mean, how often do you even eat meat and think, like, this is the flesh of an animal? Like, I, like Right. Rarely, if yeah. ever. I, I mean, mean <laughs> you know, it crosses my mind occasionally, and usually in those times I've been so accustomed to doing it my whole life that I'm just like, oh, yeah, whatever, and I shovel more down my throat. Oh, see, I know? have the opposite problem. Like, even when I'm, like, cooking the best type of meat possible, when I'm like, oh, this is the flesh of a cow, I have to, like, stop myself from not, oh, really? not cooking it. Not me. Like, I'm, oh, like, really? such a carnivore. I love meat. Well, see, I love the and... taste of meat, too, but I still, the fact that it's the flesh of I an mean, animal, I Yeah, but I also do feel like we are the top of the food chain and there's you know other animals eat other animals and like that's how yeah, you sort of live and survive in right. this world you know and yes certainly you could, one can make the choice not to but human beings are omnivores 
Well, and like um, he was saying, too, there's ethics around being vegan and vegetarian, too. There's other things about your carbon footprint and how that affects animals as sure. well. And the clothes you buy and this, the other things you buy in your home and your lifestyle definitely affect the welfare of animals as well. Like, sure. it's about... You know, it's about doing the best you can in several different types types of circumstances. But, yeah, I mean, uh, I don't feel bad for eating meat, uh, um, but I definitely think I could be more mindful about the way I do it, mm-hmm. um, and that I do choose probably a certain level of denial about it to be able to kind of maintain the lifestyle that I kind of have to maintain based on my, like, income and my location and also my desire to eat delicious animals. So the next the next question that I asked James, we're going to move on to the family part now. James, in his memoir, The Shepherd's Life, talks about his grandfather and his father, and he's got a really delightful description of his grandfather in the opening chapters. And one thing that particularly stuck with me was that he said his grandfather had three children, two daughters and a son. And so out of all of the grandsons, James was the only one who carried his grandfather's last name. So I asked James to tell me a story about his grandfather, of recognizing the connection that he had with his grandfather and the responsibility of being his grandfather's son. And this is what he shared. So some of my earliest memories of being like four, five, six years old, following my grandfather around. I used to help him in the spring when the lambs were being born. And if there was snow, he would fetch the ewe, the mother sheep, and the, and the lambs into the barn. And it was it was like a scene from about 150 years ago now, but it was my childhood. So there are lots of little pens made out of the small hay bales or the straw bales. I can remember him holding the sheep upside down and, and putting the lamb onto the onto the udder, the, the teat, and squeezing the milk, the fresh-born milk, the colostrum into the lamb, which it needs. I remember thinking, this is amazing, nobody else gets to do this. And the older I got, I realized how modern life, in modern life most people don't do that. Um, but he was, he was caring and gentle, but also very tough in a sort of guy way as well. So uh, I grew up in a house that watched Robert Mitchum and John Wayne movies, and um, my grandfather was not a million miles away from a sort of Robert Mitchum type character. Okay, they look a little dated in the modern world where things have changed, but uh, uh, as a boy, he was a man's man, and, and, and I was looking for that kind of man's man to admire and love. So I don't think you and I have ever talked about your grandfathers on either side. Are you close with either of your grandfathers? Well, both of them died when I was not too young, but I mean, neither of them have been alive for over a decade. My grandmother, my grandfather rather, on my mom's side was sick and disabled for most of my childhood even that I can remember. There's stories that my mom tells me of like me being with my grandfather before he suffered like a serious stroke that left him kind of like too unwell for me to really form significantly meaningful relationship with that I remember. So that's that side. And then on my dad's side, I like remember more like interaction with my grandfather on that side. He was a really funny guy, but I think also he was at an age and kind of like was the kind of guy like when the grandkids would come over like he would never say this to our face but I think he kind of like wanted to be in his chair watching TV and like was a little maybe annoyed by like the young children running around Mm -hmm. and I never like got that impression from him although like my mom told me like that that was kind of the case for a little bit but I know, I, I mean, in fact, when I was, when that first came on and he was talking about his grandfather, the first thing that popped into my head was like, wow, I wish I had more of a relationship with both of mine. Mm. 
Oh, that makes my heart sad. Yeah. Because I feel like that's a very important relationship for a grandson to have if you can have it. Yeah. I mean, I I think I always looked up to my dad's dad in a certain way as like a a comedian, you know, he was he would always crack little jokes and stuff like that and that's kind mm-hmm. of what I remember about him. Um but yeah, I think it would have been really nice to be able to have like more memories to look back on that are were meaningful to me. Yeah. How about you? Well, I'm very close with my mother's father, my papa, and I could do an entire show on my papa. I could do like I'm he's lived twenty minutes away from me my entire life and, and he's still alive? He's still alive. I mean, that's amazing. And he's and... I know my grandparents on my mother's side have lived twenty minutes from me my entire life. He's in his late eighties, he's eighty nine years old and he's doing great. And other than his knees hurt, you know, he's got his bad days. I could do an entire show just about how badass my grandfather is. But my Portuguese grandfather died when I was twelve and it's more like I see my remembrances of him. That's more the sort of legacy I think of when I think of James's book because my grandfather was Daniel Raposo and my father is Daniel Raposo and my brother is Daniel Raposo. And my grandfather died of a heart attack and my father had heart surgery last year. They're so similar in some ways from what I remember. Yeah. These memories, like the, I remember my grandfather the first time I went to Portugal just with my father, like, he didn't speak English and I didn't speak Portuguese, so I don't have a very personal memory with him, but I have these like postcard images in my head of my grandfather and my father reminds me of him in some ways. And so like the memories I have of my grandfather are more of like a version of my father it's, that I see. It's amazing how when someone passes, they become larger than life Completely. for us That's in a certain way. Is. And yeah. like that the legacy of your non-living grandfather in some ways is so huge in comparison to like this very mm-hmm. real and image you have of your living grandfather. Who's all around, who's in this room everywhere. I can point out to you my grandfather, my papa in this room and my grandfather is alive in my father and my brother. It's, yeah. Yeah. Thinking about James's book and anybody who's read his book will understand where I'm coming from with this too. Just the, connection between losing a parent, which we're going to talk about with the next track with James talking about his father. The first time I ever saw my father cry was the day my grandfather died. And I was home. It was the first time I had Lyme disease when I was 12 and I was out of school because of it. I was, I couldn't walk. I was, I was paralyzed from the waist down for a time. And so I was homesick. I was the only one of my father's four children home. And my grandfather died in Portugal in the Azores. And my mother called my father. And I was lying on the couch and downstairs because I couldn't go upstairs with my father carrying me up to my bedroom. And my father came home and he collapsed in my lap crying. And it was the first time I saw my father cry. Mm -hmm. And within hours, my aunt, my tia, had come from Long Island to pick my father up to go to the airport. And it wasn't until years later that I was able to go and see where my grandfather was buried. And now I go and help there cleaning out the family mausoleum and cleaning the little caskets and washing the windows. And it's an honor that I do with my father every time I go and something, you know. But that's, that is a poignant memory of my grandfather um, the fir- of the first time, you know. So it's very, yeah. it's something I carry with me, which plays into our, our next and final track of today's show, um, which is a tearjerker, folks. But first... <laughs> We need to take a little break and hear some a word from our sponsor. Sure. So let's do that, and then I'll get back to the story. I'm ready to cry now, though. Oh, I'll have to wait. Do your own voice now. <laughs> let's just take a break. We'll be right back. I... 
Today's program was brought to you by Estes Public Relations. Navigating the world of media can be tough. Lucky for you, it's our specialty. At Estes Public Relations, we specialize in media relations and marketing for the culinary spirits and travel industries. Our clients, including award-winning chefs, four-star hotels, and artisanal food products and innovative beverage brands, have been featured in media outlets nationwide. Each member of our PR team brings a unique talent to our firm, from TV training, creative writing, and digital marketing, to recipe editing, graphic design, and spirits education. In a market crowded with competition, we can help your message stand out by connecting with our long-standing relationships with industry influencers and journalists at top print, TV, radio, and online outlets to tell your story. Where can Estes Public Relations take you? For more information, visit EstesPR.com. And we are back sharing stories from James Rebanks, the author of The Shepherd's View and The Shepherd's Life, who I spoke with this weekend when he was in town. So the last question about love that I asked James, the, the shepherd writer. High on a hill with a lonely goat herd. That is the wrong country. That is the wrong job. That but is that's what wrong... I've been thinking this entire time. I'm sure he would not appreciate it. Maybe, I don't know, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe he's laughing right now as he listens. I'm ignorant, James. I'm sorry. I don't know these things. That's just him. when I think shepherd, sometimes that's right what comes now. into my mind. I'm learning. This is a learning experience for me. <laughs> God, I'm trying to be serious and have depth on the show today, and you keep on blowing it. I know, I just never bring any depth we to should, the show. We should let our listeners know that it is late on a Sunday, and we've both worked like seven days straight right now. We're a little punchy. We are not live in the studio with our heads straight. We should probably Yeah, this is pre-recorded, and this is what you're getting. So. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is outside. Everything about this episode has been outside of the norm, um, which really doesn't justify anything if you listen to most of our shows anyway. Anyway, for the final story we're going to share from the very serious well-spoken James Rebanks, who's probably regretting having talked to me the other day. I asked him about his father and about working with his father, because when you work with your family, bad things can happen and relationships can be strained. So I asked him, though, what either working with his father on the family farm or working on this book, what he might have learned about love had he not had this work together. Ready, Ben? Bring it on. Grab a tissue. Uh... Well, I left school when I was 15 years old. I went to work on the farm. I got paid lousy money. Lots of people that work with their family or work in the family business will know all about this, whether it's a bakery or a deli or whatever it is. So my family was one of those families with all the tensions. You know, grandfather's the boss. Dad, dad should be the boss because it's his turn. Uh, sort of grandson coming through that was me. And uh, so my love with my father was more complicated than with my grandfather. My grandfather doted on me and used to treat me like I was a prince in our world. <laughs> and I used to follow him around. Up, uh, but after I lost my grandfather, I got into a more complicated relationship with my father. For a long time, we used to fight. In many ways, being part of the farm together spoiled our relationship for maybe 10 years. And there was a lot of sort of bitterness and fighting and uh, sort of negative man stuff where you're butting heads against each other and uh, you just want the other person not to be there. But the truth is, I came out the other side of that. So um, when I was writing my book, my father, sadly, my father got, I found out, found out he had cancer. Uh, I lost my father 18 months ago, but when I was writing the book, instead of being a book idolizing my grandfather, which is what it might have been a long time ago, it became a book uh, which was like a letter to my father. And I wanted to tell him why I loved him and why I respected him. 
and I did that through my book. So I wrote this book about why working people matter, why working people uh, lead dignified, meaningful lives, and about the beauty that they see in the world. And uh, I told the story of my father uh, sort of weakening as he had cancer, and our relationship changing to one where we became great friends and it was full of mutual respect. And when my father was close to dying, uh, I went around the farm with him and uh, he would tell me about the things he wanted us to do on the land after he was gone and that I had to look after my mum and things like that and he'd make me cry. I'm sorry, um, you're making me cry. <laughs> uh, so when my father died, the truth is, um, uh, three weeks before he died, he read my book and uh, I asked my mum how he reacted and she said he cried a lot and uh, he told my sister he was surprised how much I, I loved and respected him. So when he died, uh, I couldn't have said any more to my dad and that's... The single best gift about the book is not that, not that thousands, hundreds of thousands of people have read it around the world. It's that I got to write a letter to my dad before he died and I got to tell him everything I wanted to say to him. And I would encourage anybody listening to this program to do the same. Uh, there are a million things to fall out about with your brothers, your sisters, your dad, your grandfather. But those things don't really matter. It's, it's the love and the, the shared life that you have together that really matters. And I think you should try and celebrate that and tell those people about it. So that's a tough one, huh? It's beautiful and horrible to listen to at the same time. Yeah, well, I mean, it certainly has a happy ending, but speaks to a life, you know, where there's a lot of struggle with right. a huge relationship, both working, family, it's, Living, you can't escape dying, it. right. And, I mean, to hear him say there were times where I wished he wasn't there, I can only imagine what that... That missed time now feels like. Yeah. Yeah. So this being our show about fathers, what hits me when I hear that is the idea, especially when you work with your fathers or this sort of idea we have of following in our father's footsteps, even if we don't work with our fathers, is that whether your father is in your life or not, or whether you are the son following in his father's footsteps or the daughter seeing what a man is supposed to be like, we sort of look to our fathers to emulate how we are supposed to behave or how people are supposed to behave so then what happens when you disagree with your father or you butt heads with your father or you are estranged from your father or you don't have that relationship with your father and it takes work or it takes illness to bridge that divide and then you find yourself being told by your father, do this after me, do this when I'm gone. That's a lot. That's heavy, man. It's amazing. Like, in some ways, sort of like, genetically, we almost can't, like, escape being like our parents. Of course. You know? Like, so we often turn into our parents. Even if in, we try to rebel against it. Even if we was, try to do the opposite. I was opposite. just going to say, like, oftentimes events happen throughout the course of our lives that make us want to reject who right. our parents are or whatever. But it sounds like... In this case, in James's case, that he came to like a really amazing understanding <laughs> that is, you know, a great happy ending, and I think like an enviable situation for anyone, you know, like I'm should we should time. all be so lucky um, that we get to share the full contents of our heart with a loved one um, and have everything on the table and have it be received with such love and acceptance. Do you tell your father that you love him on a regular basis? I do. I mean, it's not the most comfortable... Like, I tell my mom I love her at the end of every phone conversation I have with her. With my dad, it's, like, not at the end of every conversation, but, like, mm. it's said, you know? it's And not infrequently, mm. but it's just, like, not as comfortable <laughs> as telling a woman, you know? like <laughs> My dad texts me, he loves me. He'd call it all the time. But I wonder, does he do that with your brother? 
Oh yeah, I think so. I mean, he hugs my brother. He yeah, calls him his prince, gives him hugs. He's got he's got three daughters and one son, but they have a but they definitely have a hard relationship. My father and my brother work together in the business, and I see that strain their relationship. But I also <laughs> my dad tells me how proud he is of my brother, sure. and then tells me that he's not going to tell my brother. You know, it's got to motivate him to make him work hard. So I'm reading James's book, and I'm like, shit, my dad does the same shit to I my see, brother. I actually think my dad lives vicariously through me a little bit. Like I think. Maybe if my dad could do it over again, he'd want to be a musician or an artist. Your dad want to be you. That's basically what you're saying. My dad, my dad would want to be. Well, me. who wouldn't? Let's. Who wouldn't want to be me, Jacqueline? Come on, let's be honest here. So after these poignant stories, that's how we end <laughs> the show. No, um, I don't even want to be me. It all goes back to Ben. <laughs> Um, <laughs> no, but I, I love the message that, that James gives us at the end, which is because it's hard to sometimes tell the people that you love, that you see on a regular basis and that you can afflict within your family. Family is hard as we are going to be exploring, continuing to explore for the next four weeks and your parents. parents. Well, he offers a great piece of advice, which is that honesty ultimately will, the truth will set you free and love. Yeah. I'm going to toss in love. Love will set you free or will bite you in the ass, depending on the circumstances. I was trying to bring it back to a positive thing to wrap it up, and you had to... But speaking of, speaking of love, <laughs> listeners, at the beginning of the show, I, I teased you a little bit and said that we had five tracks from James. And um, so because we are a show largely about romantic love, the fifth question that I asked James was about his wife, Helen. And I asked him what Helen brought to his life uh, that felt like it was always missing. And so that audio clip is going to be on heritageradionetwork.org in the coming days. But in order to find out when and how to get to it, you have to follow us on Twitter or Instagram. We are at Radio uh, to find that tweet or that Instagram. See, I'm bribing you now to come find us. That is our show for today. Thank you so much to James Rebanks for spending some time with me this past weekend. You can find more about his books and links to purchasing at our site, lovebitesradio.com. Thanks so much to our engineer, Pierre. Our theme song is Give Love by Josh Dion. And we are a very sleepy Jacqueline Raposo and Ben Rosenblatt. We will be back in the studio next Monday right here at heritageradionetwork.org. See ya. Save the world. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.